Do you uh, remember this? When it was uh, first published back in 2000, it was a bestseller, millions of copies sold because here was a man that we all looked up to and admired. This is the autobiography of Lance Armstrong, a man who through sheer determination and sheer willpower conquered cancer, and then he went on to conquer the Tour de France, greatest bike race in all the world, and he won that race year after year after year. His courage, his grit, self-discipline, so inspiring. Here, here was the ideal man. Here was the perfect testimony to the power of positive thinking. If the mind can conceive it, then surely the, bo- the body can achieve it. I mean, we love this guy. He was a hero because here was living proof there are no limits to what you can do if you'll just put your mind to it. And then the truth came out. And we learned that this was all a lie. Uh, he titled his autobiography, It's Not About the Bike, and we're thinking to ourselves, yeah, Lance, that's right. It's not about the bike. It's all about the drugs, isn't it? He lied. He cheated. Lied and cheated all the way to the top. And when the truth finally came out, we discovered there was a big gap between the man that he presented himself to be and the man he actually was. The, the real man was not anything at all like the ideal man that he pretended to be. And when the truth came out over there in Australia and all their public libraries, they took this book and they moved it out of the biography section and they moved it over to the section called fiction because that's what this really was, fiction. Now, here's where this gets personal. It's really easy to be mad and upset about things like this. Lance, Lance, how could you let me down? How could you lead me on like this? All these years getting me to believe things that weren't true? I mean, it's really easy to be self-righteous and to want to step on our hero and treat him with contempt. What a rat! But what if they wrote a biography of my life or your life? I mean, a full-on, full disclosure, no-holds-barred, detailed account of how we have actually lived our lives. I'm sure there'd be parts of the books that we wouldn't mind reading, the parts of the book that talk about the good things we've done. I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty decent guy. I work hard. I try to be kind to others. I come to church every week. I'm a blood donor. I pay my taxes every year. I mean, there are even times when I will sacrifice my own personal comfort just so I can help people in their time of need. I mean, over the course of my 63 years, I have done a lot of nice things. But I've done some bad things, too. I'm not a mass murderer or a child abuser, but there would be a lot of things in this biography of me that I would be ashamed of. There would be a lot of parts to this book that would be painful and disappointing to read. I think about all the people that I've laughed at when I should have been out there helping them. The many times that I just stood with the crowd when, when others were being teased or embarrassed or publicly humiliated, and I just stood there and laughed at them, laughed at their failures, laughed at them while their hearts were being broken, laughed at them while their confidence was being shattered. I mean, I should have been out there defending them and going to bat for them. But I took the coward's way out, and I just stood with the crowd and mocked them in their misery. Or I think about all the people over the years that I've hurt because of my anger and my impatience, saying things and doing things that were just mean and rude and hateful. Or I think about all the, all the people over the years that I've taken advantage of because of my selfishness. Or I, I pretended to be nice to them. But the truth is, I wasn't thinking about them. I was only thinking about me and how I could use them to make things better for myself. I mean, on and on it would go. 
the lies, the gossip, the hypocrisy. I think about all the people I've shouted at and, and snapped at, all the loved ones that I've ignored and belittled and made their lives more miserable and less satisfying just so I could rant and rave, just so I could be sure to have my way at their expense. Not a pretty picture. And that's why I'm so glad there is no such biography of me. I'm glad, really glad all these things have not been written down so you can see all that I've done, let alone all the things I thought and dreamed and imagined, which are even worse. See, the Bible's right when it wrote about me, I have sinned again and again and again. Romans 3.23, I have sinned and on a daily basis I have fallen short of the glory of God. But... This is why I love the Christmas story. I mean, the real Christmas story, not the one about Santa Claus, the one about Jesus and why he came to this world. He came to this world to rescue people like me. He came for this very reason, so he could save me from my sin. Now, lest you think I'm exaggerating, I'm making a mountain out of a molehill, and David, don't be so hard on yourself. Stop putting yourself down. Yeah, yeah, everybody here knows nobody's perfect. We all do some bad things from time to time. But David, let's not make a federal case out of this. I mean, let's be honest. We all know we're pretty decent folk. We're polite. We mind our manners every day. We do our best to be good citizens and nice neighbors and moral people. I mean, in the end... Though we mess up from time to time, in the end, the good's going to finally outweigh the bad, right? Like, we think this is how it's going to work on the Day of Judgment. Here's what God's going to do. He's going to have these giant scales. And on one side, he's going to put all the good things we have done. And on the other side, he's going to put all the bad things. And as long as the good stuff outweighs the bad stuff, we're all right. We're okay. We're going to be in. We're headed for glory. But if the bad stuff outweighs the good stuff, you're in trouble and you're headed for a bad place. So right now, what you've got to make sure that you do, you know, yeah, we'll mess up from time to time, but just make sure you're doing more good things than bad things and you're going to be all right. That's a lie. Nothing but a lie. That's not how it works in God's court, let alone our own court system. <laughs> Say you get picked up for a speeding ticket, fourth speeding ticket you've had in the past six months. So there's a pattern here. So this time you're brought to court. And as you're standing there before the judge, you, you try to plead your case, your honor. I'm not, a, I'm not a bad guy. I am not a menace to society. I've never raped anyone. I've never killed anybody. I've never so much as taken a candy cane from a department store. I am not a thief. I am not a murderer. I'm not a criminal of any kind. I shouldn't be here. And then just to build up your case, to let the judge know what a great guy you are, you proceed to list 25 other terrible, rotten things that you've never, ever done over the course of your entire life. What is the judge going to say? Hey, I'm, I'm glad you haven't done all those terrible things. But all of that stuff is irrelevant to the matter at hand. The fact of the matter is you were caught speeding. You were caught doing 65 in a 25-mile-an-hour school zone. And it's the fourth time you've done this in the past six, or six months. So you've broken the law, and as a judge, I am ob obligated to uphold that law, so you must be punished. You must pay the fine. Do you see the point? The good things you do never cancel out the bad things you do. That's not how it works in our court system, and it's not how it works in the court of heaven either. You see, unless Jesus comes and provides a way for us to be forgiven, there's no way anybody here will ever be qualified to enter into glory. Let me take this one step further. 
just to give another piece of evidence, lest you still believe this lie, this myth that, hey, we're all decent folks. Yeah, we do bad things from time to time. But in the end, we're all going to wind up in a good place because basically we're good people. That's just not so. And to prove that, I would challenge you to shadow my wife over the next six weeks as she teaches her first grade class there at Brown Elementary in Brownsburg. It's a five-star school. It is the pride and joy of the Indiana Department of Education. I mean, you won't find any better kids than these 15 boys, seven girls, that sit in her class every day. In fact, if you could see these kids at their annual musical concert, all these little boys and girls standing up there in the riser just singing their hearts out, you know what you'd be thinking? Oh, they're little angels. Such cute kids. What good little boys and girls. And they are. They really are. But you spend eight hours a day, five days a week, trying to teach these little angels, and you're going to see something else. You're going to see a group of kids who can be very impatient and demanding and complaining. You're going to find a group of kids who like to fight and say things that are unkind to each other. You're going to find a group of kids who always think they know more than what they really do. You're going to find humility is rarely one of their virtues. You're going to find a group of kids who always want to be first in line. And anytime they get into any kind of trouble, they are quick to shift the blame to somebody else. Teacher, it wasn't my fault. She made me do it. You're going to find a group of kids who don't like to share it. You mean I have to give half of this to him? Why can't I keep the whole thing for myself? There are times when these little angels can be so devilish. And when you see this, don't be surprised. Don't be shocked. Because the truth is, you're looking in a mirror. You're seeing a reflection of yourself. What they struggle with is exactly what every one of us struggles with every day of our lives. We are all selfish. We are all sinful. From the very littlest to the very biggest of human beings, we all desperately need a Savior. And that's why this story, the Christmas story, the story about Jesus, that's why this story is so important. Because here's, here's the one, the only one who can actually take away our sin. Let's read about it. Luke chapter 2 Verse 8, and there were shepherds, and notice two things about these shepherds. They were living out in the fields nearby and keeping watch over their flocks at night. So one of the things we learn about them, they're outside, outside of town. They're isolated from the people in town. See, because of the kind of work shepherds do, uh, they're gone for long periods of time. So they rarely have any kind of contact with the general population, which means the shepherds are all the time missing out on the big events, the cultural activities that pull people together and give that community a sense of bonding. They always feel like they're on the outside looking in. And because of the kind of work that they do, watching sheep, sheep need constant attention 24-7. I mean, you can't take your eyes off them or they'll go astray and get into all kinds of trouble, so you've got to be out there all the time. And because you're out there with the animals all the time, you begin to smell like them too. So, so shepherds rarely have a chance to, because of the kind of work they're doing, they rarely have a chance to get a bath and clean up. And on those rare occasions, when all the shepherds bring all their flocks together, and one, one part, one team of shepherds say, hey, you other guys, why don't you go in town for a day or two? Kind of catch up on things. Have a moment for yourself. And later on down the road, you can do the same favor for us. So you get a chance to go into town. And yet, because you've been out with the animals all the time, people can smell you coming from a mile away. They're not going to want to get close to you. And because they haven't seen you in weeks and months, and man, you're like a stranger to me. What do we even talk about? You see, because of the kind of work they did, they always felt like they're on the outside looking in. But that's about to change for these shepherds and change in a dramatic way. Have you ever had this experience where 
uh, when you were a little child, maybe it was the first day of school, or maybe you'd been invited to a friend's house for a birthday party, and yet you'd never been in this house before, and you hear all the noise and commotion on the inside. So just before you step into the door, you're kind of thinking to yourself, what am I about to step into? Or you see this huge school building, and you have no idea what it's like to spend all day at school, so you're kind of scared, kind of nervous. And yet your big brother is standing at your side. He knows exactly how you feel because he's been through this before. So he reaches down and he takes hold of your hand, which is his way of saying, you're not going into this experience alone. I'm walking in with you. And suddenly that confidence, the courage you feel because you know he is at your side. That's the kind of comfort and assurance these shepherds are about to experience. They're not going to be outsiders anymore, left out in the fields, out of touch wondering if we're ever going to be able to fit in, wondering if we're ever actually going to be wanted by those who are on the inside. No! Now, because of Jesus and the way he's about to take hold of them, they're going to be brought in, brought into the closest proximity to God himself. Now they will get a firsthand look. Now they will have this insider's understanding of how this mighty, majestic God is about to save this world because they're going to become a part of this salvation story too. God picked them, the shepherds, to witness something astounding. They are going to catch a glimpse of heaven itself in all of its glory. And then the second thing we learn about these shepherds is because of where they are, right outside the town of Bethlehem, that means these sheep they are watching are no ordinary sheep. These are sheep that are being raised, that are being prepared to be sacrifices at the temple. You know, Jerusalem, Mount Zion, the the, the, the place where you find God's house, that glorious building, that's just six miles away, just a two-hour walk. And so when Jewish people from all over the world begin to pour into that city, into Jerusalem for, to celebrate the Passover or some other major festival, that means they'll need thousands and thousands of lambs so they can make a sacrifice. Because without the appropriate sacrifice, you cannot enter into God's presence. Well, here are these shepherds, these shepherds. They're about to meet the Lamb of God, the one who's going to make the final and decisive sacrifice so no other sacrifices will ever have to be made again. In other words, this whole arrangement of how we relate to God, how we're able to get close to him, all of that is about to change in a dramatic way. And the shepherds are going to witness this. Think of it like this. Think of a, say you've got a friend who has a bad kidney. And because that's such a vital organ, if he's going to stay alive, he needs dialysis keep himself going. He needs this special machine or else his life will quickly come to an end. So on a weekly basis, sometimes more frequently than that, he's got to get hooked up to this machine where now all of his blood is literally pumped through that machine so that that blood can be cleansed of all its impurities. I mean, normally that's the function that your kidneys perform for you, but because your kidneys are not working like they should, now this machine kind of takes their place. But that machine is just a temporary solution. If your friend is really going to have a chance to live again so he doesn't have to be tied to this machine all the time, what he really needs is a donor, a transplant. He needs a new kidney. Well, so it was for all the people throughout the Old Testament, which includes all these people here in Luke chapter 2. They're still under this old covenant, this old arrangement of how we relate to God, which means... Sacrifices have to be made week after week, month after month. People bringing sheep and bulls and goats, laying that animal on the altar because this is how their sins were forgiven. But it was like a dialysis machine. This is what kept them going, but it wasn't a permanent solution. This didn't actually cure the problem. For these people to be cured, they needed a donor. They needed a transplant. They need a new heart, a new life. 
That's why all the people here in Luke chapter 2 get so excited. Because when you meet Jesus, you meet the one who provides the miracle. Here's the one who offers the ultimate and final cure for all our sins. So you come back to your friend, the one with the bad kidney. Every time he gets hooked up to that dialysis machine, he's reminded that he's sick. He's not well. He's not healthy. He's got this disease that cripples him, that holds him back, that keeps him from living the life he ought to be able to live. So it was for all these people throughout the Old Testament, those Jewish people, every time they came back to the altar and put another animal on the altar, they were reminded of their sins. They were reminded spiritually we're sick, spiritually we're crippled, unable to function like God wants us to. But then Jesus arrives, and suddenly we've got a cure. No more dialysis, no more need for any of those sacrifices. He provides a permanent answer. He provides the final and eternal solution for all our sin. And that's why, verses 9 to 14, all these angels show up and they start singing. All of heaven wants to celebrate what Jesus is about to do for us. So watch. An angel Lord, verse 9, appeared to these shepherds and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And the shepherds were terrified. I would be too. (laughs) Anytime in the Bible when an angel shows up, it means something big is about to happen. Something important is about to take place. God is getting ready to shake things up. Well, what is he about to do? So they're terrified. But verse 10, the angel said to him, don't be afraid, please. Don't be afraid. I bring good news, news that'll stir up great joy that's going to be for all the people. See, nobody's going to be left out. This offer is made to all. Today, in the town of David, that's Bethlehem, a Savior, not just any kind of baby has been born. A Savior has been born for you. He is the Messiah, the Lord God himself. And this will be a sign to make sure you don't miss. Don't want you to miss. I want you to be able to make this connection. I want you to be able to see and experience this for yourself. This will be the sign. You're going to find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying. Here's the real sign, lying in a manger. Now, you're shepherds working with animals. You're kind of self-conscious because of the way you smell. Here is God removing every bit of hesitation because the shepherds, where do they find their Savior? In a place that's filled with that same aroma. So any kind of reservation the shepherds might, I mean, here's a baby lying in a feeding trough. That's used by animals. So any sense of reservation the shepherds might have, well, it's wonderful what the angel said. Man, that's a great invitation. But man, the way we look, the way we smell, oh, I'm not sure this is appropriate. No, God removes all those fears and doubts, removes all that hesitation and sense of reservation because they find Jesus in a place that now even the shepherds got no qualms. They feel free to get close to him. God always puts himself in places where he can be found. So... Verse 13, suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those whom his favor rests. Because of Jesus, these shepherds won't be lost anymore. And that's why the angels are singing. Now we need to appreciate what that means. That word lost, that's an awful word, a terrible word. Anytime we use it, I mean just so devastating because anytime we use it, it means something sad has happened. She lost her job. He lost the election. They lost a fortune in the stock market. Your team lost the game. Your computer lost the document. Your company just lost the client. She lost her health. He lost his mind. The accident victims lost their lives. It's an awful word, a terrible word, because anytime we use it, it means something very sad, very disappointing has occurred. But as terrible as that word is, 
The opposite of the word lost is the word saved. So as terrible as it is to have to tell somebody something's been lost, there's nothing more glorious than to be able to come to that same person and say, what is lost has been found. What's lost is now saved. You know, think of a group of miners trapped for days in this underground cave when all of a sudden they hear the tapping sounds and they begin to realize they're aware of our plight. They've not forgotten us. Somebody's working hard to provide for a rescue. Now, instead of despair, there's this awesome feeling of hope. We're about to be saved. Or think of a hiker lost in the woods, wondering if he's ever going to be able to find his way out when all of a sudden he sees and hears the helicopter circling overhead. And now he begins to realize, they're looking for me. I'm about to be rescued. He begins to rejoice. As terrible as it is to be lost, there's nothing more hopeful. Nothing more glorious, nothing more joyous than to realize I'm about to be saved. That's the joy that the shepherds experience when they get this chance to meet Jesus. Let me finish this way. Blake Rogers was sitting in his kindergarten class, sitting next to his very best friend, a little girl named Mara. Blake loved Mara. Well, on this day, you could tell that Mara was happy because she was just singing all the time. Well, it was study time. Everybody was supposed to be quiet. So the teacher politely asked Mara, it's study time, and in order for all the other kids to be able to concentrate, you, you've got to stop singing. Please stop singing. Well, little Mara couldn't do that. She's just like the angels here in Luke chapter 2. She had this melody in her heart, and she just couldn't contain it, just couldn't keep it on the inside. I mean, unconsciously, she's just kind of sitting there working, but singing while she works. So the teacher warned her and warned her again, and the little girl just kept singing. So finally, the teacher had no choice. She had to take action. So she took Mara's clothespin sitting on the green side of the chart and moved it to the blue side of the chart, and that's not good. That meant later on that day, when all the other kids went out for recess, Mara wouldn't be allowed to play. And that meant later on that day, when all the other kids got a special snack at music time, Mara wouldn't receive any treat because she'd broken the rules and she had to be punished. But worse than the punishment was this sense of shame. The shame of seeing that all the other kids in the classroom had their clips hanging on the green side of the chart. Only Mara's clip was sitting on the blue side. And little Blake Rogers felt so sorry for Mara. I mean, he could see the tears welling up in her eyes. He could see how embarrassed she was, how upset she was, and he wanted to help. So he patted her on the back. He offered some words of comfort. He tried to make some funny faces to get her to smile again, and nothing would work. So finally, little Blake Rogers decided to make the ultimate sacrifice. He started to sing. And the teacher warned him, Blake, you know, it's study time. We've got to be quiet. Please stop singing. And he wouldn't cooperate. So the teacher warned him, and she warned him again, and he just kept singing. So finally, the teacher had to take action. She took Blake's clip and moved it from the green side of the chart to the blue side. And all of a sudden, little Mara wasn't alone anymore. And little Blake Rogers sat there just smiling, and little Mara wasn't crying anymore. Now, I know that's not a perfect analogy. I get that. But in a sense, is that not what Jesus did for us? We've got our clips hanging on the wrong side of the chart. We have sinned and we have separated ourselves from God. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. We were not born into this world to be all alone. We were born into this world to be a part of a family, the family of God. And yet, because of our sin, we have put ourselves at odds with the Lord. But Jesus 
came to help. Jesus moved to our side of the chart. And he didn't just come here to hang out with us because that wouldn't change anything. No, he came here to take our place, to take our punishment. So now instead of being condemned, now we could be forgiven. Now we could move back to the right side of the chart. Do you remember how the Bible puts this? It explains it like this. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Christ suffered for our sins. Not his. He never sinned. He never did anything wrong. Christ suffered for us. Christ suffered for our sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. Why? So that he could bring us to God. Now the question is this. Have you ever accepted what he has done for you? Have you ever actually accepted that gift of salvation? See, Luke chapter 2, we learn you can be religious and still be lost. Look at the shepherds raising these sheep so the people will have sacrifices, so people will have an opportunity to once again come into the presence of God. These shepherds are doing all kinds of good things. But until they meet Jesus, they're still lost. See, just because you come to the rodeo doesn't make you a cowboy. And just because you come to church every Sunday morning doesn't mean you're actually a child of God. No. No, the question is, have you put your trust in him so that he can now put his life in you? That's why here at New Hope, we emphasize baptism because of the way the Bible talks about it. It's not a work of man. It is not a first step of obedience like a lot of people describe it, but that's not how the Bible describes it. Colossians chapter 2 says baptism is a work of God. It's not something we do for him. It is something special he does for us. When by faith you step down into those waters, because there's nothing magical about the water. We are not baptismal regeneration as, as a lot of people accuse us of. No, nothing special about the water. But here is what's special. When by faith you step down in the water so you can meet Jesus. And now he can do something special for you because both physically and spiritually at that moment, you just fully, totally surrender yourself to him. So that, Romans chapter 6, he can now bury you. Bury that old man. Bury that old life. Bury all that sin. And so that now he can raise you up to a brand new life. See, have you put your trust in him? So now he can put his life, his eternal life into you. Luke chapter 2, without Jesus, you're lost. Only he can take away our sin. So will this be the day when you put your trust in him? Let's pray. God, just like the scripture said here, Luke chapter 2, bring us that good news, the good news that will fill our hearts with great joy, the joy of knowing that Jesus is our Savior. That's the joy I'm praying for today. God, if there's anybody here right now who's never yet made that connection to Jesus. And God, may this be the day when your Holy Spirit grabs their hearts and convinces them of their need, their need for him. God, open our eyes so we can see the truth about Jesus, the truth that only he can take away our sin. And today, God, let us see your glory, the glory of how you save us. And I pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. There's no joy like this joy. It's the joy the shepherds experienced when they met Jesus. It's the joy that Leslie Eisenhower experienced just a couple weeks ago when by faith 
she stepped down into the waters of baptism so she could meet Jesus. So now he could do something really special for her. It's the joy of knowing he has taken away all my sin. Have you experienced that joy? If you haven't, and you want to know more about this, what's really involved in a moment like this? How do you prepare yourself for a moment like this? How do you put yourself in a place where you can receive this blessing from God? If you genuinely want to know more about this, then please come and talk to us. Talk to me, talk to Rob, any of the elders, any of our staff, because we would love to have the opportunity to tell you more about Jesus and to tell you about all that he can do for you. Now, you read a little bit further here in Luke chapter 2, and you'll see Mary. And she's just kind of sitting back and watching all of this, watching God and how he's working, how he brought about this birth and the really unique set of circumstances that he chose for this, in which this birth to occur. How she saw him bring the shepherds and listen to the testimony that they shared. Watching how God brings all these people together. The Bible tells us there in verse 19, and Mary began to ponder all these things in her heart. Meaning, she's taking time to reflect upon the significance of this. And then the Bible tells us, and she treasured up all these things in her heart. Do you realize that because of Jesus, we have a treasure? A treasure called salvation. And it's here at this time of communion. We have this wonderful opportunity to ponder. To just really appreciate what he has done for us. So this morning as we eat the bread and we drink the cup. May this be a moment when we praise him. And we worship him as our savior. Let's pray.